Please note, in this episode we briefly mention issues of assault, which some listeners may find upsetting. All the way down, these people have been associated with important historical events. War of the Roses, gunpowder plots, the most appalling rape and rogue. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts and I'm the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums. In this series, we're celebrating 100 years of our museums by looking in depth at 100 of our favourite objects and the stories that they can tell. Today's episode sees us exploring the centuries of history behind one of this area's most impressive buildings. It's a building that's been at the heart of national power struggles and events. Today's object is a print showing Hornby Castle. The print is actually a page taken from an 18th century book called Lancashire Rivers, so it measures only 18 centimetres by 13 centimetres. It's based on a drawing by an artist called B. Ralph and shows the castle high atop a rather dramatic hill with the River Loon curving around its base. The castle is shown with an impressive keep and tower, but you can see that some of the curtain walls are broken down with foliage growing over them. The rest of the black and white image shows the rolling countryside behind the castle and the silhouette of a large tree to the right-hand side of the foreground. This is just one of many prints showing Hornby Castle in the museum collection. Between them, they show the changes to the castle over the years, and demonstrate that for centuries it's been viewed as a beautiful and romantic building, well worth capturing by artists. We wanted to know more about the history of this intriguing building, which in modern times looks very little like the scene shown in this print, but which has played a role in national political events throughout its history. Hornby Castle is still a private family home, and we spoke to Sue Bull, whose family live there, and who does occasional talks on the castle to find out more. With so much to cover, she began with a potted history of the owners and events up until the Wars of the Roses. Hornby Castle really started in about 1089, when William the Conqueror gave it, after a lot of argument with nobles, to one Roger de Montbegon. The Montbegon family took over the land from a Saxon called Alric, but Roger de Montbegon's grandson married Alric's granddaughter, so the family's merged in that way. Roger Montbegon built the typical Motton Bailey castle down at Gressingham Bridge, but his son, Roger de Montbegon II, upgraded to a stone castle on the top, which is where Hornby Castle has been since, in about 1100. Not much of that remains except a few foundations which were discovered at various stages. Roger de Montbegon number three was the biggest of the bold bad barons you could possibly imagine. He rebelled constantly both against King John and King Richard, usually on grounds of paying taxes, and he witnessed the signing of Magna Carta. He died without any legitimate issue, although there may have been issue elsewhere, and it then went to a cousin called John de Moynden, who granted it to someone called Hubert de Burr, who was the most powerful man in England after King John. He married the King of Scotland's sister, and so he had a lot and lot of power. The de Burr family held on to two generations, and then there was a challenge to their ownership by somebody called John de Lungvilliers, who was another descendant of Roger de Montbegan, who said it should never have been granted to Hubert de Burr in the first place, and he wanted the castle back. And after 40 years of legal dispute, the first of many, 
he got the possession of Hornby and it went to his daughter, Margaret de Lungvillier. And she, in her turn, bought it as part of her marriage portion to Sir Richard de Neville. It remained in Neville Castle for many generations and it came down to another Margaret de Neville who married Sir William Harrington of Falton, a very distinguished soldier. His son was another very famous soldier, but then the War of the Roses broke out. The Harringtons were Yorkists, and so Harrington and his son fought for the Yorkist side. The Battle of Wakefield, they were both killed, which was a terrible tragedy for the Harringtons because they knew that at this stage, their feud with the Stanleys would make them very vulnerable. James Harrington of Falton, a younger brother, rushed into Hornby, took possession, and then began a fascinating period of the Stanleys trying to get the Harringtons out, partly through legal means, by appealing to the king, also by bringing up a wonderful cannon called Mile End and firing at the place, but they didn't get in then. At this point, the feud between the Stanleys and the Harringtons over possession of Hornby Castle boiled over in a way that helped shape English history at the highest levels. The Harrington family, who were incumbents of the castle, were Yorkists, and obviously Richard is a Yorkist. And when the castle was under threat from the Stanleys seizing it, he remained a very strong support for James Harrington, who again was meant to have carried the standard at the Battle of Bosworth, so it shows you this very close political and friendship as well. All the time, as I said, the Stanleys were trying to get Hornby and kept requesting the king, Edward IV, to hand it over. He only handed it over because at that time his own position was very insecure, the king, and he needed the support of those with the biggest private armies, which of course was Stanley, not Harrington. So he ordered eventually the castle to be handed to the Stanleys, who moved in, and the Harringtons had to go away. When Richard III became king, the Stanleys were very anxious about their possession of Hornby because they thought, with Richard being such a strong supporter of the Harringtons, he may well boot them out. And at the Battle of Bosworth, he should have won on grounds of strength. He had a much better army. In the middle of the Battle of Bosworth, he got separated from his own army, and that was when the Stanleys saw the gap and broke their word to Richard that they would support him, charged down, and he was killed. The Harringtons really had no hope after that. But the interesting thing about Richard III is he spent so much time here. While James Harrington had it, he was here constantly. He must have spent a lot of time walking along here and looking down the valley and everything. But this wasn't the only national event that Hornby Castle and its residents played a part in. It was also a Hornby Castle resident who brought down the gunpowder plot. The first Lord Monteagle, Sir Edward Stanley, was a great friend of Henry VIII. There was then the second Lord Monteagle, third Lord Monteagle. And third Lord Monteagle's grandson was William Parker, who was a lucky young man because he joined the Essex Rebellion against Elizabeth I. Essex got his head chopped off. His father paid £5,000 to save his son's head. And he was then recalled to Parliament by James I. And there's a strong suspicion that he was actually planted as a spy amongst the plotters, because it was very odd for him to suddenly turn Protestant when he was an ardent Catholic, and he had had his head saved. Nobody knows, there's a lot of arguments, but the interesting thing is that he was very much connected to the plotters. His sister, I think, was married to a plotter. Guy Fawkes was a neighbour and often came. He received a letter, nobody knows quite whom, but it's suspected to his sister, warning him not to go to Parliament. He got this letter, handed it over to the spy master, I think it was Salisbury. Immediately then it unravelled. And what is interesting is that he got a large sum of money and a pension for life for his services rendered, which again, you know, you can make of it what you will.
So when did the castle change its main purpose from being a fortress to being a manor house? And when did it get the Gothic facade that we see today? In the Civil War, it was described as one of the noblest and strongest castles in Lancaster and provided a refuge to a lot of the Lancashire gentry because they were worried about the Roundheads coming. Cromwell was determined to destroy Hornby Castle and sent out his soldiers. They failed at first, came back again because they'd captured one of the guards who told them that they could get in through the east window, which was not defended because it was on a steep hill. And they did and captured the castle. There's no evidence that anyone was harmed, the gentry dispersed. Cromwell sent an order it had to be completely demolished so that the Cavaliers couldn't take advantage of it. But they got interrupted and didn't finish the job, which was ironically done by the Duke of Hamilton, going down to Preston to help Charles I, who destroyed it so the Cromwellians couldn't take advantage of it. And he just left the keep, and it was left like that. Fifth Lord Monteagle couldn't afford to put it right, sold it to somebody called Robert Earl of Cardigan, and he and his grandson did very little, and then they sold it. 1713 to Colonel Francis Charteris, and it was he who built the Georgian mansion around the keep. Colonel Francis Charteris was the most appalling rake and rogue and inspiration for Hogarth's The Harlot's Progress and was thought to have used Tormy Castle at one time as a brothel as he did his house in Hanover Square. He got away with this terrible lifestyle because he had so many influential friends. One serving girl took him to court and sued him for rape. She couldn't have done it herself, so she must have had some very big, important backers who wanted to bring charges down. And at first he wasn't worried because he just paid everybody off. But the jury found him guilty. He was sentenced to hang, but his son-in-law, Lord Weems, came to his rescue and organised a petition with all these wealthy people like Robert Walpole to get him off, not out of any love for his father-in-law, but because his estates would have been forfeit, in which case the family money would have all gone. So they got this petition and, and, and got him off. After that, it was inherited by his grandson, who was equally unpleasant, until it was then sold to John Marsden of Wellington, who began to make sketches of turning it into a Gothic mansion, but it never got completed. One of the biggest and most important legal cases, of which they think Dickens-based Bleak House, took place in the Marsden period of his will, there was a lot of suspicion about a codicil that had been added with undue influence involved. And there was this great lawsuit, which took 10 years, whereby the heir at law, Samford Tatum, challenged the will. Everybody read it every day. Nobody knows, but it's interesting that Bleak House did appear six years after this amazingly public lawsuit. Samford Tatum eventually got it. It went to his nephew, Pudsey Dawson, a banker and businessman. So Pudsey Dawson really put the Gothic extension on. Pudsey Dawson eventually died. It went to his nephew, Richard Pudsey Dawson, who found the house so mortgaged because you don't build castles on the cheap. So once again, the house was terribly mortgaged and Richard Pudsey Dawson wished to sell it. To give us some of the more recent history of the castle, Sue told us about the wealthy industrialist who came to town one day with the purpose of buying the castle. John Foster owned the Black Dyke Mills, typical Victorian industrialists. He introduced many new ways of making textiles and was a very successful businessman. And when Hornby Castle was put up for sale, he came over to purchase it. And there's an interesting anecdote because on the day of the sale, the local neighbours had gathered and were saying, oh, this rogue is coming from Yorkshire with bags of gold, they said. Not at all the sort of person we want. When the day of the sale came, the Castle Hotel was full of all the people coming to Nosy Parker. And a man came in 
and said, could he have something to eat? And the landlord said, well, yes, he said, but you'll have to have it here because the dining room is full of all the people who've come for the sale. And as this man got up to go, the landlord said to him, well, happen by tonight, I may have a new master. And John Foster replied, yes, and happen by tonight, he said, it may be me. He renovated the castle. When he died in 1879, his son William continued the building works, adding a larger kitchen area and enlarging the servants' quarters. In 1881, William was appointed High Sheriff and he held his sheriff's breakfast on the 9th of July at Hornby Castle. He had 300 guests in the castle itself and 1,500 in marquees in the grounds. 600 gallons of beer and 40 large cheeses were consumed. He then left in a carriage procession for his grand entry into Lancaster, Crowds lined the road all the way from home to Lancaster, cheering wildly as the procession passed. I mean, some of them had some of the beer, I'm not surprised. He died in 1884 and his son, Colonel William Henry Foster, inherited. He built a new gateway for the north side of the castle and a new wing on the northeast side. Huge staff, house and gardens, hot houses, grew pineapples and exotic fruits. Typical heyday for a Victorian country house and as much admired. After the Colonel's death in 1908, Hornby devolved to his son, Henry Cyril Warnford Foster. He dismissed most of the staff as he felt that as a bachelor he had no need for such a large household, eventually moved into the Castle Hotel. Meanwhile, the castle remained empty for 14 years until 1939 when it was bought by Sir Harold Parkinson. And today, it is a private residence. Like all old houses, especially Gothic ones, Hornby Castle is rumoured to have a ghost. Before she left, Sue told us about the castle's spooky story and finished by telling us why she finds the history of this intriguing building so fascinating. A ghost is meant to be Lady Harrington, who was the widow of Sir Harrington killed at the Battle of Wakefield. A Victorian story went around that seeing the body of her son and husband coming back, she was so distressed that she threw a baby off the keep and she was disconsolate. But historically, she was past childbearing age and there is no missing baby. Many Victorian stately homes, as they became sort of gentrified, like to have a ghost. There are many country houses where a serving maid or somebody threw a baby out of a window. So I think that can be discounted. The best story is actually recorded in a Lancashire dialect poem called The Hornby Park Mistress. It's about a young girl called Margaret Bracken, who was found pale and wan and distressed one morning. And she told her mother that she had met the ghost of Lady Harrington, who'd led her over hill and dale and up the river Loon, and she was exhausted and fell into this terrible state in the morning. The history of Hornby is not so much an architectural history, because it's been destroyed so much. But all the way down, these people have been associated with important historical events. For example, Edward Parker, gunpowder plots, Lord Monteagle's father, he was one of the commissioners who sat on the trial of Mary Queen of Scots. So can you imagine what they were talking about at dinner? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There's lots more to listen to in episodes where we discuss everything from streams to stained glass windows, 